Has anyone here ever watched the movie Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? This sermon doesn't have anything to do with that, um, but it does have to do with the temple, and uh, it does have to do with the temple's doom. Stand with me as we read from Luke chapter 21. I was originally going to cover uh, well over 30 verses tonight, and there was so much in the first two that that's all we're going to get to. So Luke chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. And this is God's word, and if we let it, it will change our lives. While some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Pray with me. Father, I pray that we would take your words to heart this evening. Help us to know them and help us to do them. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Last week, we studied the passage of the widow's offering. We saw a widow giving her last two small coins, all she had to live on. There's something about that passage that I didn't really talk about um, because I knew that it would have more bearing tonight. Uh, uh, It had bearing last week, but I knew that it would have more bearing tonight. The temple is a representation, okay? It is the centerpiece of Israelite religion. For a long time, there was no temple. Uh, Originally, it was a tabernacle. It was a tent that was designed to be taken down and carried with the Israelites. Uh, The tabernacle remained the house of God for centuries through the wilderness wanderings, all the way through the period of the judges, even through the reigns of Saul and David as kings over a united kingdom. God's house was, for a long time, a tent, made to pick up and go as God would lead. And eventually, God did get a more permanent house. It was Solomon, David's son, put it together. Of course, David helped. He got pretty much everything Solomon needed. But Solomon completed the task, and the magnificent of the temple was no doubt a testimony to the Israelites' prosperity in the land that God had given them. But as kings turned away from God, sin prospered, and the people drifted ever further. Sometimes a prophet would call out the sins of the people. In some cases, the king would even lead a national revival. But the problems continued to escalate through the years. Even after 70 years of exile in Babylon, still many of the Jews never quite learned their lesson. In Jesus' day, the problem certainly had not gone away. Like a tumor left untreated, sin had metastasized into a full-fledged case of cancer. It was so bad that it was especially prominent among the religious leaders, priests and scribes, teachers and other leaders were among the worst of offenders. That's why Jesus speaks directly to their sins. Take any chapter in the Gospel of Luke, or any of the Gospels for that matter, and you don't have to read long before you find Jesus calling out those who ought to be among the most religious of Jews who just don't get it. Those religious leaders ought to have been the ones bringing people to God, leading the way, to follow God and his commandments. And instead, they distracted them with 
and oppressed them with a dutiful form of tyranny. You even see this in the story of the widow's offering. Instead of just looking at that story again, I want to back up a couple verses. Ignore in your Bible the headings and ignore the chapter number that comes in between because those things often cause us to separate things that should be connected. Instead, let's read Luke 20, verse 45 through 21, verse 4 and just read it straight. And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in all she had to live on. Do you do you see the connection? This is a major problem. The scribes are the type that devour widows' houses. And then a widow's house gets devoured right in front of them. It, it's, it's a It's almost a cognitive dissonance that can separate these two stories and not see the connection. She has given her last coins as offering, and the system that is supposed to care for her instead uses her for every little bit that she has. God had commanded his people to care for the widow, for the orphan, for the sojourner, the most vulnerable among them. Exodus 22.22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Deuteronomy 24.17, you shall not pervert justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge. Zechariah 9. Or seven, verses nine and ten. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Jeremiah 22, three. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed innocent blood in this place. The Israelites were not to glean the outer, uh, the outer portions of their fields. They were not even to go back and reap a second time over what they had gleaned. All of that was left for the vulnerable, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the sojourner. Not only does God command them to care for the widow, among others, God promises that he himself will care for them. Deuteronomy 10, 18. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 146, 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Proverbs 15.25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud, but maintains the widow's boundaries. God's heart to care for those who need it most shines throughout the Old Testament. But in Jesus' day, many of the religious leaders looked at widows, not as the one for whom they care, but the one from whom they can gain. 
The widow was just someone else to exploit for my personal profit. This is the same reason a German monk named Luther wrote down 95 different points of disputation and nailed them to a church door. He saw the practice of selling indulgences that would prey upon the poor and he realized that's not right. And it's even true in our day. There are false prophets who claim to preach the gospel but only seem to care about their bank accounts, their lavish lifestyles. While I would love to afford a private jet, I don't think I need one. By the time of Jesus, the whole religious structure, every bit of it, is corrupted. Instead of honoring God and calling the nations to righteousness through God's given commandments, Israel was defaming God's name and driving the nations to contempt for God. Anybody ever have tooth decay? When a tooth is decayed, Dennis has a lot of different options. If it's just a little bit of decay, he can probably clean that out and put in a filling. Sometimes it gets down to the nerve, and that's when you need a root canal. Boy, that's fun. In severe cases, a crown may be the only option where you have to take so much of the tooth that you have to make a whole new outside for it. And sometimes the decay is so deep, there is so much of the tooth that is rotten so badly that there's no other option but to pull it. Sometimes the only option is to get rid of the whole tooth. That's the level of decay in, Je- in, in the Jewish religion of Jesus' day. Now, I'm not saying that everybody was decayed. And I do not mean to paint a picture that shows all the religious leaders as terrible tyrants and all of the poor, oppressed people below. There were plenty of sinners to go around. Plenty of sin. And I'm sure there were some. In fact, I know there were some who sought to do God's will. But the system was so bad so decayed that it all had to be torn down. And the centerpiece of that system, the temple, becomes ground zero for God's judgment. And the odd thing is, the temple itself looked pretty nice. Look at verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings... Beware the scribes because they're devouring widows' houses. And then he's looking at an offering box where a widow is putting her last two cents. The house of that widow being devoured before their eyes. And then some people are saying, look at the great offerings the temple has. Do you not see it? Of course you see it. It would be like, well, I won't use a modern example. I'll go back. It would be like the governor of Florida in 2000 declaring how great their election system is. Now, y'all remember Florida in 2000, right? Yeah. I, I do take comfort in the fact that 2020 went much smoother in Florida than 2000 did. Um, that is a good thing. Everything. <laughs> you look at the temple itself. Everything looks good on the outside. The, the, sometimes when a tooth is decayed, there's a giant hole in the tooth. And you can see it. You can feel it with your tongue. You know that it's decayed. There's no doubt about it. I had, I've got a temporary crown in right now. I'm getting a crown on a tooth. That's why I'm thinking along these lines. And there was a giant hole in that tooth. I mean, it was obvious to me that tooth definitely needs some work. 
And it's probably because of how big it feels on my tongue. That's probably not just a filling. Thankfully, we caught it before root canal, so that was good. But it was obvious that that tooth had a problem. But the temple didn't look all that bad. Religious decay is a little bit different from tooth decay. In tooth decay, there's a giant hole. You can tell it's it hurts, or there's some other sign of a massive problem going on. In religious decay, it's a little bit harder to see. No church puts on their sign, we're hypocrites, come join us. Churches don't write in their statement of faith, we refuse to follow God's clear commands. They don't do that. Fraud Baptist Church, I don't think is a very popular name, but the decay is still there. It's in how the church treats the widow, the orphan, the shut-in. It's in how the church looks out for its own needs and interests rather than the needs of the community around it. It's how the church is more concerned with beautiful decor than meaningful ministry. I've seen churches that have enough money they could stop taking offerings for over a year and not miss a beat financially. That's not good stewardship, y'all. That's stinginess. And it's decay. It looks good on paper. It looks good from the road. It looks good to the in crowd of members, but that kind of decay runs deep. And it must be cleaned out before it completely destroys that local congregation. So how do you respond when the decay is that bad, when it's that deep? Well, there's only one response that you can have. Verse 6. As for these things that you see, he says, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The only way to root out the spiritual decay at this level is complete destruction. Remember, the temple itself wasn't the problem. It wasn't the building. It was what was going on in the building and around the building. This is why Jesus doesn't overturn the altars but the money changer tables. This is why Jesus doesn't actively work to tear down the building, just to chase out the wrongdoers. This is why Jesus doesn't attack the commands of God. He attacks the Pharisees who claim to teach the commands of God, but teach their own commands instead. You see, it's not the temple that's the problem. It's not the system that God set up that was the problem. The problem is a spiritual problem. It's a problem of the people who claim to be representing that system, claim to be employing that system, claim to be applying it to their own lives and helping others apply it to their lives, but in reality, they're only in it for themselves. They're not seeking after God's gain. They're not looking for God's righteousness to be revealed. I mean, it is revealed right in front of them. And instead, they say, you need to rebuke your disciples who are singing these praises to you. Let me ask you a question. Who gave you the authority to do all this? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Time after time after time. Oh, tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Time after time after time. These who ought to be representing God before people are instead in this for personal gain. It wasn't the temple that was bad. It was a system that men had devised this counterfeit of the true religion that was simply a self-serving religiosity. The demolition of the physical building is representative of the annihilation of the sinful system that was taking place within it. Just as the building represented the religion, 
now the building must represent its counterfeit's downfall. That, that leads us to a difficult place because it forces us to ask uh, what, what decay happens within my temple. Am I looking at my life and seeing God's work as though God helped a little bit, but it's pretty much me? Am I more worried about my own benefit? Now, that's true. I get a lot of benefits out of this relationship with God. I don't go to hell. That's a pretty big benefit. I get to know God. That's a pretty big benefit. But you know, it's funny because Jesus also says, when you give, do not left your le- let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, how do you do that? I mean, you could hide your left hand behind your back when you're giving something to someone, but the hand's kind of part of me. I know when I'm giving. I know when I'm doing something nice for someone. How can you be completely oblivious to your good works? Bonhoeffer talks about this in, in his book. Um, it used to be called The Cost of Discipleship. It changed names to just discipleship. But he talks about this fact that in the Christian life, we are to be focused on one thing, and that is Christ. And if we are focused on Christ, what we do, we, we don't see our own righteousness because we have no righteousness to speak of. We have no righteousness to see. When we become completely entranced by Christ, and maybe that's not the right word to use, when we are so focused on Christ that even, even we ourselves don't matter anymore. We know He's got us taking care of us. We don't have to worry about getting ahead. We don't have to worry about getting the things that we think we deserve. Instead, when we are so focused on Christ that He is the only one that matters, things we do, we become oblivious to. Not because we don't know they're happening. We just see that it's God's the one that's working it in us. But the religious decay doesn't let that happen, you see, because it's all about me. It's all about making sure I get recognition. It's all about making sure that others see what I'm doing. Look at me. Here's my gift. Look at this wonderful job I'm doing over here. I tell you what, y'all are so lucky to have me around. That's decay. Are we exercising genuine religion? Or are we decayed? Back to the tooth for a second. Whether it's a filling or a crown, whatever else it might happen to be. If a dentist is going to fix a decaying tooth, the first thing he has to do, once he's got you numb, is to start getting rid of the decay. The very first thing he has to do is to find the bad spots and clean them out. Drill them out. Whatever they do to get them out. Before he can fix the tooth, he's got to get rid of the problem. Because if all he did was fill the hole, well, the decay wouldn't be, wouldn't go anywhere, would it? If all, if all he did was put a crown on top of the tooth, the tooth would still rot. No, you gotta get the decay out. And then there's a part that we play in that process, right? You gotta actually change the behavior that caused the decay in the first place. Otherwise, in, in a couple of years, you've got more problems. That's me. One of the biggest questions we have to ask is, what is the decay in our own hearts? We don't get the luxury of the question of, is there decay? Because there is decay. It may be small. You may have been working on it for a long time, and God may have been so gracious to you in helping you so far along the way that you are almost there, but you're not there yet. None of us are. None of us can be. 
That, that's, that's why we're not glorified until after we die. That's why that's the end of the process, because it takes a long time to get there. Where's the decay? And what do we need to do to get rid of it? Personally, congregationally, what is it that is eroding the righteousness of God at work in our hearts and in our community of faith? And what do we need to do to get rid of it? Well, I know how to get rid of it. Repent. Keeping it gone, that, that's a different story, but God will give us grace as we need it. Christ will not allow his church to remain decayed. He will either clean it out or pull it out. May we be careful to make sure that we're not the ones that are pulled because of a lack of faithfulness. It's time for us to repent of our wrongs and to allow Christ to remove the decay from each one of us. Pray with me. Father, tonight I want to do something slightly different, and that is to invite us to repentance. We, we don't do this very often in, in this kind of way, but Lord, I feel like that's the appropriate step. Father, when I think about how you, how, what you are, when I think about who you are, the, the character, how you are so much greater than us, we cannot fathom your goodness. In fact, the only reason we know good is because of you. You are the standard by which we judge good and evil. Father, we recognize from your many works, your work of creating this universe, just by chatting, just by saying a couple words, suddenly there's light. With a couple of more, there's the seas and the skies. Not too many more, there's land appearing, crops growing, birds flying, animals wandering the earth, starry hosts filling the night sky, a sun and a moon that helped this planet have such a delicate balance for life. And then you created man, fashioned him in your image, and woman, no less your image. You gave them a beautiful place to live, a wonderful job to do, and best of all, the, your presence. And that's just the first two chapters of this story. When man falls, you don't curse him. You, you give him a promise for future redemption. And though we continue to screw up, we go from eating off a tree that we're not supposed to, to killing our brothers, to such wickedness that you almost completely destroy mankind. But in your goodness, there is still a remnant. In your goodness, there are still people alive to continue to live out the promise that you gave to Adam and Eve in the garden promise for future redemption. You took a nobody people from a nobody place, wasn't even a people, just a person, and you made him into a great nation. Not great because they're the biggest, not great because they're the strongest or the smartest, great because of your presence among them. When they are in slavery, you come to their rescue, redeeming them with your mighty hand and outstretched arm. They learn firsthand that with God all things are possible. They learn firsthand that your arm is not too short, that you cannot save. Oh, that man was as even, even fractionally as faithful as you have been, bringing them through the desert, leading them into the promised land, giving them victory after victory, growing them to prosperity, 
raising up within them leaders that would turn them back to You, that would cause them to repent of their rebelliousness and their wickedness. And when eventually their sins are so great that the only option is to send them into exile, even there Your hand is with them. They prosper in foreign lands. They become leaders in Persia. They have good businesses in Babylon because you have a plan for them, a plan to prosper them and not to harm them, a plan to give them a hope and a future. Even as they're walking into exile, your plan is still unfolding. Even as everything seems to be turned against them and and it seems like you have forsaken them, you've not forsaken them, you are even more faithful in the midst of suffering, in the midst of exile, in the midst of difficulty, you are even more faithful. And all they return to you is wickedness, profaning your name, Worshipping false gods, sinning against their neighbors. And yet you love them so much, and not just them, the whole world, that you sent your only son, God in flesh, and sent him to bear the price for our sins. Father, our sins are so great, we cannot name them all. Some of them we may not even recognize. Some of them we know all too well. So Father, I pray that you would forgive us of our sins. Forgive me of my sins. God, please forgive us. Remove the decay that has been long eating away at our hearts and our souls. Lord, we know it's going to hurt. There is no anesthesia that can numb us to the pain of removing all of that decay. Lord, we also know that when the decay is gone, on that day in the future when We are no longer subject to sin, slaves of a nature that hates you. On that day, we'll be finally whole once again. Father, forgive us of our sins. Help us to turn away from them and do what you want us to do. Help us this week to be the church you've called us to be, not the one that we would much more naturally tend toward. Help us to be the church that is a blessing to you and to our community. Thank you for for everything you do for us. Thank you for everything you are to us. Help us follow you better. In Jesus' name, amen.